0: You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others,
1: practice contemplation, and live in community. Hey everyone, I'm Cherish Badzinski. I work behind the scenes for Messy Jesus Business Podcast, primarily as a writer and sound editor. And I would like to invite you to help us celebrate an upcoming milestone, our 50th episode. I know Messy Jesus Business Podcast means a lot to many of you. Now here's your chance to let us know what you love most, to share how Messy Jesus Business has inspired and influenced you, here's how. Simply record yourself telling us about your favorite episode, something you've learned that changed your perspective, or what the program means to you. Really, anything about Messy Jesus Business Podcast that matters to you is just fine. Then email your voice audio recording to us at messyjesusbusiness at gmail.com. You just might hear yourself on an upcoming episode. That's MessyJesusBusiness at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. And now on to our guest.
0: Tessa Bilecki has always loved the diverse peoples and cultures around our planet and studied Russian and French, preparing for a career in international relations. Instead, she co-founded a monastic community and four retreat centers in the United States, Canada, and Ireland. She left monastic life in 2005 and co-founded the Desert Foundation, exploring the wisdom of the desert with a special focus on peace and reconciliation among Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The Desert Foundation lives online at sandandsky.org. Tessa has served as a professor and a retreat and pilgrimage leader. She has been engaged in spiritual dialogue for decades, beginning with Naropa's groundbreaking Buddhist-Christian dialogues in 1981. She is a public speaker at venues throughout the world and a prolific writer. Tessa is currently working on a memoir and now lives as an urban hermit in Tucson, Arizona. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Tessa and I discuss how Catholicism taught her to be earthy. We examine how pain and the healing process allow for transformation, and how suffering can help us to know union with God. We consider what healthy asceticism is, and how we're called to honor the goodness of all God creates. We also examine interspiritual dialogue and why it's important for contemplatives to be in relationship with people from other faith traditions. Lastly, we explore the creative process of making order of the chaos. Enjoy. Tessa Balaki, welcome so much to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you, Julia. I'm excited. Now, I know you're joining from Arizona, where you're living in an urban hermitage, and you and your friend, Father Dave Denny, co-lead the Desert Foundation. Yet for 40 years, you were a mother abbess of, of Carmelite monasteries. What would you say have been some of the most significant moments that have helped you to gain clarity about who God is calling you to be?
2: I was born Catholic, I'm a cradle Catholic, and I'm one of those people who has no horror stories, my entire Catholic life has been wonderful, I love being a Roman Catholic, that doesn't mean that I'm not critical of the institution, but I love the tradition. I I love all our deepest teachings. I love the communion of saints. I love the liturgical year. I love the images and symbols. So I would say the first pivotal moment is a long moment for me. It's Mm. my very rich Catholic upbringing. And I come from a Polish-American family. My grandparents were immigrants. So in, in, in many ways, my Catholicism was different. From my other friends, I it was very indigenous. We were very linked to the seasons of the year, to the liturgical year. We did an awful lot of earthy stuff. Like mm. my favorite story is on Christmas Eve, we used to have straw on, we put straw under the tablecloth uh, in honor of the manger. And we did not start our festivities as a family until the first star came up. Mm. And it was my job to go look for the first star. So things like that meant there was a a groundedness and an earthiness. Mm. That was the first significant thing. Uh, I never went to Catholic schools. Hmm. And uh, I know lots of people have horror stories from Catholic schools. Well, I was a public school girl, Mm -hmm. so I I don't have any of those stories. And then I would say my next pivotal moment was I did choose, when it was time for college, I chose to go to a Catholic college. It was my choice. And I don't want to sound spooky or anything, but, you know, I think God... God speaks to us, and we get messages. Uh, Someone called them signals of transcendence. Uh, If you were using classical mystical language, it's locutions. The Bushmen of South Africa use a word called, uh, they say, tapping. You you listen to the tapping inside, and I love that, because it has no religious overtones, for one reason, for, for one thing. And I had some kind of a tapping. I, I found myself saying, I want to go to a Catholic college to ground myself in the intellectual foundations of my faith. Now, where did a phrase like that come from? <laughs> right? You know, for, for an 18-year-old girl, I had no idea. Huh. But, I, but that was very strong. And I went to, um, it was called at the time, Trinity College in Washington, D.C., Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur, now it's um, Trinity Washington University, but boy did I get grounded in the intellectual foundations of my faith. Hmm. I was in college from 1962 to 66, Vatican II was happening, the church was electrifying, and my theology classes were electrifying. Hmm. You know, we were reading Karl Rahner and Jean Donilu and um, Hans Kung, and, and we even heard a lot of them speak in Washington. It was a big anniversary for Georgetown University, and we went uh, to Georgetown to hear these guys in person. So it, it was tremendously exciting, and that was a huge step. For me. And then the, th- the third thing chronologically that happened is um, my junior year in college, we had a retreat from a Carmelite whose name was William McNamara. And I had another one of those huge tappings, a huge theophany. And when he opened that retreat and he said, the title of this retreat is Christian Humanism something happened really dramatically. And what I understood, and I didn't hear a voice, but somewhere deep inside, I heard, I understood, this is the man and this is your life. And I had never really heard of the contemplative life. I really didn't know about Carmelite life. And I knew that I was going to follow this man to the Arizona desert and that this was going to be my life. There was nothing much happening when I joined him. He had this beautiful vision, but he didn't have skills for kind of incarnating that vision. I think that's a very strong gift for a woman. I think a woman knows how to take ideas and embody them. That was my role. I didn't know that was what I was gonna do. I mean, I just, I just knew I had to follow. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then Mm -hmm. all of this unfolded. And we actually created, uh, well, we created one community, but four centers that were not only where we lived as Carmelite monks, but they were retreat centers. So we started one in Sedona, Arizona in the 60s. Then we started another one in Nova Scotia, Canada in the 70s. And then we had to leave Arizona because of encroaching land development. We were, we lost our silence and solitude. And we started a new place in Colorado in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we started one in Ireland. Hmm. So hmm. It, this was an amazing adventure. I'm trying to write about it now in a memoir, but it's such a huge story. And then I need to tell you what the next pivotal moment was. And this is painful because, and I think it's important as Catholics to face these issues. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: In 2003, we found out that our founder had been acting out with multiple adult women. Mm. And everything started to fall apart, And I was actually diagnosed with PTSD at the time, Mm. although I've recently read something where a a psychologist said, why why are we calling this a disorder? It should be PTSR, a post-traumatic stress response Mm. because there's no other healthy response Mm. but a traumatic Mm. response. Mm -hmm. And that, is the most important moment in my life. This is the the biggest teacher, absolutely terrible. I completely fell apart. Hmm. The trusting in God through that and moving through the pain and the trauma and the healing of that has been the most important faith builder in my life. Lots of people asked me at the time, well didn't you lose your faith? And I said <laughs> No, of course not. This wasn't Jesus's fault. You know, it was clinging to Jesus through this, uh, which is what saved me. And my whole, uh, you know, mystical life just grew by leaps and bounds Mm -hmm. uh, because of this. When people pray out of pain like that, there's a kind of funny sense that, Jesus is supposed to come riding in on a white horse, like a white knight, to save us. And my experience was, well, that's not possible because Jesus and I are clinging to one another on the cross through this. He can't come from the outside because we're united in this suffering. I am a part of his suffering He is strengthening me and mine. And it's like, it's one crucifixion. It's one resurrection. Although mine took longer than three days. (laughs) It took a lot longer than three days, but it was that very strong faith that continues to support me through this. This was in, uh, it began in 2003. That's almost 20 years ago. And when you have post-traumatic stress, you don't get over it. You learn how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And so it actually continues to be a very important teacher for me and vehicle for a very intense mystical life. So interesting,
0: so profound. And you know, I think what I just adore actually about your story is how you entered into that that mystery of our faith about how suffering is redemptive because of the transformation and the union that you experienced with Christ and how it brought you to
2: this deeper intimacy. Absolutely suffering is redemptive. I always had a sense of that. I didn't always have the courage to enter into the suffering. There were some very painful aspects of my childhood In 1962, which was my senior year of high school, well, I have to tell you the dates because the tragedy is it's two of my brothers died within six months of each other to the day. Wow. So on on March 4th of 1962, my my eight-year-old brother, who was a Down syndrome child, uh, died of leukemia. And then six months later to the very day on September 4th, my, my brother who was just a year younger than I was killed in an automobile accident and he was the driver. You, you see what a huge thing this was, but my family, we didn't face it. We didn't talk about it. We did not grieve together. And so I actually spent many, many years kind of blocking deep pain, and that's why this uh, experience that happened when the community fell apart was so freeing because it unlocked all of it. That's the heart of our whole Catholic faith is the Paschal mystery is the dying into life, and I'm convinced that I've experienced the the life the joy the vitality that i now do um, well the way i like to say it is that i finally died dead enough you know we kind of skirt the 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 really brutal death and so we don't rise to our full our full being and this this tragedy that happened to us as a community there was no escaping it it was just um Absolutely in my face, and I was so broken by it. The only way was into the pain and then out of it. And I part of the reason I love talking about it is that I want to encourage people that it doesn't matter what you are suffering, you know, Christ is there with us in the suffering. Like I say, not going to come in from the outside to save us. Mm We have to go into it with him, mm-hmm. and if we do, we we will rise with him. But we have to enter into it, mm-hmm. and then we will rise from the dead. And it happens over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't encourage people enough. Yeah, yeah. To 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 let yourself be broken, let yourself suffer, uh, cling to Christ through it, and. Incredible, unimaginable, unexpected new life will come. And it's dark. Uh, and then the dawn breaks. And it happens over and over again. I I I stake my life on it. You <laughs> know, I yeah. stake my life on it. Yeah. It, It's the heart, it's the heart of my life and talk about messy Jesus business. <laughs> this is it. No, this is it. <laughs> well, and I think Suffer- I- suffering and death. Uh, for the sake of new life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, the
0: paradox, right? The wonder of the paradox that we have to embrace the pain and the suffering in order to know freedom and joy. It's
2: absolutely, yeah. and it doesn't mean what it doesn't mean wallowing in it, right, right, because it's also our obligation to seek healing and to it, it it's a mysterious thing mm-hmm. that each person has to it's it's a it's a difficult navigation mm-hmm. and each one of us has to find we we all have to find our own way so for example for me very practically in those years of suffering and it was years when was it psychologically healthy to feel the pain and to kind of collapse in grief and sobbing or sleeping and complete incapacity and when was it healthy for me to pull out go to the movies see a friend have a glass of wine have a good meal it's it's this dance with it and nobody can give you a recipe nobody can give you a blueprint mm-hmm. nobody can give you a map it's a it's a trial and error kind of thing but we come out of it because that's the promise. That's the promise. That's, that's, and that's the heart of our Catholic faith. And that's why I stay Catholic. I mean, this is, how could I not? This is the heart of it for me. Hmm. I don't find this depth of teaching on redemptive suffering. I don't see an example like the example of Jesus on the cross. Because we're in this mix, mystical relationship with Jesus, we're intimately connected in this experience.
0: For those of us that could might be tempted to wallow or to get lost in the suffering or to despair, what have you learned about how to listen to the Spirit's guidance when you're on the journey of healing
2: and transformation? Well, I think it's trial and error. Yeah. It does take deep listening. Which does mean uh, silence. It means solitude. I was already steeped in that because we were an eremitical community. We all lived in separate hermitages, mm. which is what the Carmelite charism initially was. You know, when you think Carmelite now, you think of St. Teresa and big convents, but the first Carmelites were hermits. And so what we were trying to do as a community was go back to what Thomas Merton called the primitive Carmelite ideal. So I was already trained in silence and solitude. Now, what happened in this crisis, however, was part of the pain of it was I was also being shunned through this experience. So that I wasn't just in silence and solitude. I was shunned and abandoned and everybody just didn't forget about me they just stayed away from me so Mm. the solitude became isolation instead of solitude you know a lot of it was 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 kind of natural instinct I think that our gut and our instincts our God is in there and that's partly how the spirit speaks to us Mm. is uh, you know what does our gut tell us Mm-hmm. Uh, what our instincts tell us? Mm-hmm. And so, as I said earlier, sometimes it meant pulling out of pain and this isolation I was in, and calling a friend, going to see a friend, going to the movies. And sometimes it was uh, letting the pain wash over me, and and I would collapse from it. So I think to hear the spirit, we need we need the silence and the solitude. But it's not. I don't mean only that, because God also speaks through music, through art, through poetry, through other people, through nature. Nature is is an extremely powerful vehicle for hearing what God has to say to us. Now, I also remember one of the most important lessons my therapist told me at this time was she said, You are in so much pain, and your pain is so big. Don't stay inside. Hmm. Live outside as much as you can, and give your pain Hmm. to the universe. I mean, she meant really give your pain to God, of course. But I was living at that at that time, um, at the beginning of all this, in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Colorado. There were these huge fourteen-foot peaks. You know, outside the front door of this um, cabin. And I felt like I was giving my pain to those mountains, to that sky, which was a metaphor for giving it to God. Mm. So that actually, that piece of land became very important to me because it was the play. it was literally the place of healing for me. Wow. it was taking the pain and helping me transmute it. Mm. So there are all kinds of ways listening in silence, listening to music, listening to poetry, listening to nature, listening to other people. Mm. Sometimes, you know, an outrageous comical movie. There's there's just no end to what God can use to reach us. Yeah. If we're open and we tend to be too pious about it, that's <laughs> part of the problem. Where we tend to be too pious and we don't realize God is is ready to try to reach us every every which what God speaks to me a lot through food through good meals all of this is good you mm. know we we just have to remember that original message from the beginning of Genesis God looked looked at all this and said this is good this is so and good yes yeah. this is so good. You know, I love how it goes. This is good. This is very good. Yeah, right. And how did we ever become so life denying? Mm. You know, it's it's a mystery to me. Mm. Um, we Christianity from from early on became way too ascetic, way too life denying, and um, I think we're still I think we're still suffering from that mm. um, more than two thousand years later. Hmm. So what's a healthy aesthetic? Well, uh, my understanding of asceticism is is, uh, training. That asceticism is not about punishing bad body. Mm. It's about training good body to be better. So for example... um, See, I have no patience whatsoever, no use whatsoever for um, all these weird asceticisms that came out of the early church. You know, flagellation and um, even Francis, whom I adore, uh, eating, putting food and putting ashes in his food. I, I, when I get to meet St. Francis, this is something we need to talk about. It's like, (laughs) you know? In my opinion, Francis is sinning against the goodness of the food by throwing ashes in it. Mm. Um, so I think if we, if we see a, a thesis, which literally means training, mm-hmm. so that we're training like athletes or we're training like dancers, mm-hmm. it's a discipline, it's not a punishment.
0: Mm.
2: I think that is healthy asceticism you know so i have a lot of disciplines in my life you know what i will eat what i won't eat um making sure that i get exercise that i that i keep my body strong and healthy that's that's an asceticism because it's a discipline but i'm not punishing myself i'm training myself Ah, yes.
0: I love that framing. And it's really holistic. And I think it's honoring the goodness of God's creation. Honoring the goodness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think in your book, so Holy Daring, the earthly mysticism of St. Teresa, the wild woman of Avila, which is one of my favorites on my shelf that I go back to all the time. I can't think of a particular quote, but I think this is definitely a theme. This is a message of St. Teresa of Avila
2: and her teachings, right? About holiness. Yes. I think it is although I'm I'm going to confess here I think it's more Tessa than Teresa. Mm. That's how I read her. Mm. That's mm. how I read her. But if you if you look at her history she flagellated mm. um, and yet she says things like well we need common sense and everything in good measure. And when St. John of the Cross and another friar who were her first male Carmelites, parenthesis, Teresa has the distinction of being the only woman in the history of the church to reform an order of men. This is one <laughs> of the wonders about her. But when they wanted to just go barefoot, she said, no, you have to wear shoes mm. and, and you and you must have clean sheets. I think she went back and forth. but But that was her era. I mean, this was 16th century. This was Spain, but you know, Thomas Merton uses the phrase um, "strong man asceticism." Hmm. That, like, I'm I'm also very fond of the the whole desert tradition of the desert fathers and mothers. I actually represent that. It's one of the streams in our rich tradition that I represent, but those desert fathers were almost competitive in their asceticisms. St. Simon Stylites, for example, being this crazy witness, what good did it possibly do anybody that he spent X number of years on a pillar 60 feet up off the ground? I mean, that's just bizarre. (laughs) And, and, you know, we look at just because a saint does something doesn't mean it's a good thing. I I think we're not critical enough when we read our hagiographies. Mm. And especially when you look at the desert tradition, some of that stuff is just playing nuts as far as I'm concerned. And even St. Teresa, I have to be critical of. The flagellation was it's just not a good idea
0: mm. uh,
2: from my point of view.
0: Yeah, know yeah. They'll be,
2: who see it differently but i think it's a i think it's um if god said this is good and god gave us flesh why are we beating ourselves mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a sign of love no mm-hmm. yeah right better right. better to go out and 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 you know give alms or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Benefits, um, yeah. somebody
0: yeah so i'd love to talk a little bit about teresa fabula with you because i I think okay. of I think of her as uh, you as one of the experts, the modern day experts on Teresa Fabuline. and every now and then I daydream about some of the holy people of ages past who I'd love to interview on Messy Jesus business. Oh my gosh! And well, it, wouldn't it be yeah? Right?
1: Wouldn't it be
2: fun to do that? Right? You and know.
0: So, so anyway, what? Okay, if, let's just pretend for a minute with your expertise, your expert knowledge on her. Let's say she was here and I were to ask Teresa Vavula, what's messy about radical gospel living?
2: Oh, uh, I think she would say, first of all that Jesus sets us about doing impossible tasks. Uh sometimes he just plain old asks too much of us. Yes, I so agree with that. And <laughs> uh, I get tired and I get sick and tired of it. Why why doesn't he just leave me alone? I would just like have some peace and quiet in my convent and instead he sends me out on the highways and byways of Spain to found all these convents. With all this commotion and all this trouble, why doesn't he just leave me alone and let me be? I think that's one thing she'd say. <laughs> and and to put it in uh, more classical terms, I think what that struggle for her was about was the balance of action and contemplation, mm. which is really everybody's, anybody who's living a spiritual life, that's the basic issue. Yeah how do how do we pull off that balance and that's why i think one of her more interesting writings which most people neglect is the last book which is called the foundations which is all about her traveling around spain founding this convent and then this one and then this one and this one and she's grappling with the action and contemplation question Remember, she was, uh, a lot of her spiritual directors were Jesuits. She was very fond of the Jesuits. And Ignatius predates her uh, by some years. I forget how many. I think this may be one of those apocryphal sayings from Ignatius. But for me, Ignatius solves, in quotation marks, the issue of action contemplation when he says... uh, that we need to work as though everything depends on us and pray as though everything depends on God. Now talk about paradox. Mm -hmm. How do you Mm -hmm. do that? And I think that's one of those deep mysteries we each need to sit with. And then each of us will find our way of answering that. Um, Whether that means we pray We set aside a day a week. We set aside certain times during the day. I do think that's important. But then what happens? I'm 77 and I've been at this a long time. And I spent a lot of years uh, with a very strict discipline in community of going to chapel every morning and praying the divine office every morning, praying those Psalms. And then sitting in silent meditation so that at this point I don't do that anymore. I do get up early, but I simply go out to my patio and watch the sunrise and the day come and uh, life wake up around me.
0: Mm -hmm. And I pray
2: out of that and what's happening. Mm. And I can honestly say at this point point in my long life, uh, after lots of discipline, that I really am praying all the time. And there's nothing that isn't prayer for me. Wow. But I think we need to start out with a discipline, a daily discipline of morning and evening.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. And then a more, maybe a more intense time, whether that's on the Sabbath or another day of the week. And of course, annual retreat or more often if we can, but then what we find is that Teresa, her description of prayer is my favorite, which is an intimate sharing between friends. Mm. Now that's quite different from, yes, it can mean sitting silently in an intimate sharing, but I have already mentioned how important food is to me and sharing a meal is to me, or even eating alone. Most of my meals I eat alone mm-hmm. because I live now as an urban hermit. I'm not I'm not out in the wilderness anymore. I'm not in community, but I'm still living the same way I always have. And so most of my meals are alone, but they're not alone because I'm sharing a meal with Christ. Yeah. And that's an intimate sharing. Or I may be listening to music with Christ, but it's intimate sharing can happen anywhere and everywhere. Mm. That's why I love that description. But most people need to begin with a strict discipline for a time. And I lived that for decades. Yeah. And now I feel like I'm bearing the fruit. Of all of that discipline. So discipline is worth it. uh, Because well, that's another great Theresian thing. Over and over again in her writings, she says, the pay begins now. Mm. The pay begins now. So that we don't wait till we get die and go to heaven. Whatever we mean by that, I think it's a realm of being, not a place. Teresa experienced it here and now. And That's also very gospel.
0: It's interesting to use economic language when it
2: comes to. I know, it, but that's, that's straight out of Teresa. I know it's bizarre. Why, why, why would, well, she had a lot to do with financial stuff. She always, she had to be raising money and, and paying bills and yeah, but you know, we always want to pay (laughs) off, uh, just, you know, let's be honest. We want that. We want that reward. Mm Mm-hmm. And she and she she could have said you will receive the fruit in this life or something, mm. but that's that's really what she's saying.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
2: I uh, and yeah. I know that by experience as well. Mm. Uh, we do come into the fruition of all that we long for and aim for and uh, discipline ourselves for.
0: Mm, amen to that. Yeah, God works wonders all the time, and. And I think it is a matter of just like trusting in the unfolding and paying attention to, to what where God is continuing to draw us and, and be faithful as we uh, we follow that, that tapping. I love that that word tapping that you said earlier. Mm. You're so rooted in your Catholic tradition. This you are clearly a Catholic, just like me, yet you are in a lot of interspiritual relationships and interspiritual spaces. How do we enter into places of dialogue? where we're honoring the diversity of spiritual paths
2: and beliefs i think one of the most important things that's happening today and i do believe it's the wave of the future mm. is is what some people call the interspiritual movement beverly lanzetta calls it the intercontemplative movement because if you're going to share spiritualities or dialogue you have to be very deep in your own tradition and and I think you have to love it to then put it in dialogue with another i was thrust into a buddhist christian dialogue at naropa university way back in the 1980s when this kind of dialogue was just beginning i wasn't even 40 and i was the only woman With the likes of Thomas Keating and Brother David Steindelrast, and then all these great Buddhist teachers. And I was scared to death because I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't like it very much. And I really learned from one of the big Catholic pioneers in dialogue. And Catholics are big pioneers in interspiritual dialogue. Uh, Ari Lasso, who became Abhishek Dananda in India, whose work was continued by Father Bede Griffiths, the Benedictine, at the at an ashram called Shantivanam. And then the man who has influenced me even more is, he's dead now, a, a, a priest by the name of Ramon Panikkar, whose mother was a Spanish Catholic and his father was an Indian Hindu. Hmm. So the interspiritual struggle was actually cellular for him. And he's very difficult to read. I do not recommend him. I need him interpreted by a friend of mine who is a little smarter than I am. But what Panikkar says when we go into an interspiritual situation We need what he called vulnerability to conversion.
1: Hmm.
2: Now, what that means, and that's, that's what I went with to my first dialogue. What he meant is that I go to this dialogue with Buddhists, vulnerable to conversion, not to convert and become a Buddhist but to be vulnerable enough to convert to being a very different kind of Catholic because I have encountered a Buddhist. Ah. And this I think is crucial. I understand why people would be afraid. For one thing, people think we're going to be contaminated, Mm. but I think it's much better, instead of thinking about contamination, why don't we use the phrase cross-fertilization? You know, we travel to each other's countries, we eat each other's foods, we learn each other's languages, we love each other's music.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why wouldn't we share contemplative practices mm. and not be threatened by them? Yeah. I will confess that my favorite way of praying, I learned. I, I can't do it by myself because it happens in community. Uh, in Abiquiu, New Mexico, I used to take students to a Sufi zikr, was a particular Sufi lineage. You don't find it in every Sufi zikr, uh, which is kind of like a prayer circle of chanting and praying, reciting. and This particular group chanted the 99 names of God in Arabic. If I could do that every day of my life, I I would be ecstatic. I found that it was a simple chant. I could pick up the chorus in the Arabic, and it was so deep and so profound. Does that threaten my Catholicism? No, it doesn't. Does sitting in Buddhist meditation with my Buddhist friends threaten my Catholicism? No, it doesn't. The universe is big. God is big. Vatican II tells us that there's truth in all of these traditions. Mm -hmm. I, I I even have trouble with the word truth. For me, it's about what is your experience of God? What does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. You know, give me an example. How do you experience God, and let me experience that with you, and then let me share with you how I experience God. That's the heart of it: mm. is the sh- is shared experiences of God, mm. and God is bigger than any one of our traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's get away from: is it this true or not? What do you mean true? Mm. if it's if it's real and experiential it's true mm. we don't have to and also when beverly Lanzetta calls this intercontemplative contemplative movement contemplation is the heart of it the the mystical contemplative realm is the heart of every tradition the minute we get to the periphery of the tradition that's where all the crazy differences abide when we're at the heart of our contemplative experience that's where we experience the oneness and even the differences yes we're different uh, th- this is this is I would say perhaps the most important lesson I've learned you start out in this world by thinking oh my gosh we're so different and this is so scary then you go deeper and you say well it's not so scary and look how alike we are Mm. some people a little falsely say we're actually the same i've never said that and then i think there's a third phase and then you say wow look how different we are and isn't that great yeah i don't think we have to be the same why can't we be different and why can't we share our differences and celebrate those differences
1: Mm.
2: because the very the different traditions spiritual traditions i think even cover different territories. Mm-hmm. I think contemplation is a, is a radical expansion of mind and heart. And being in an interspiritual setting really expands our minds and our hearts. And we then can celebrate our own tradition in new ways. Uh, I feel like I'm very enriched um, as a Catholic because I have met all these other traditions. So it's no longer scary. I'm perfectly at home in a Sufi zikr, in Buddhist meditation, in a, a Jewish Sabbath setting or Passover setting, any of these. Why can't we just be at home with one another um, and, and and relax into what is happening and, and not be threatened by it? I'm a child of the sixties and um, you know, we were so open to everybody and everything in the 60s. And so was the church. Mm-hmm. And then we've kind of, as a, as a, our American culture, the world, the church, we, we're circling our wagons again, and we're mm. excluding people. Mm. And I don't get that. I just don't get that at all. We should just have uh, open arms and just be welcoming mm. uh, and learn and grow as a result uh, and it and for me it's taken me deeper and deeper into my own catholic carmelite contemplative tradition
0: ah uh, yes yes oh tessa there's so much um, that we've explored today and i'd love to just kind of tie it all together here by asking you what is messy
2: about being a disciple of jesus <laughs> what is messy about being a disciple of Jesus? I think everything is. Mm-hmm. I think life is messy. Mm-hmm. Being a human being is messy. Messiness, what chaos, that's where that's out of what creativity arises. Mm-hmm. Um, i'm I'm a bit of a obsessive compulsive i'm a, I'm, a, I'm an OCD which both means my Carmelite tradition and obsessive compulsive disorder. And I love making order out of messiness Mm -hmm. or chaos. And for years, I've kind of um, scolded myself for it. And I have come more to see it as um, a creative process like the spirit hovering over the chaos of the waters at the very beginning of creation. St. Augustine said, peace is the tranquility of order. I think messiness eventually comes to order. But we start out messy. Uh, Birth is messy. Death is messy. Gardening is messy. Cooking is messy. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, What isn't? (laughs) I know, right? You know, what is it? What isn't messy? Yeah. And and that's beautiful because it's the it's the stuff out of which the art of life comes, mm. uh, the art of contemplation. Uh, every art you can think of starts messy and becomes an exquisitely beautiful artistic creation, whether it's food or a painting or a piece of music or your life.
0: Amen. Oh, thank you so much, Tessa. This has been so fun.
2: Oh, so fun for me too. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for unleashing me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> See, uh,
0: where can our listeners follow your work and, and support you in your urban hermitage
2: life? My yeah. work in the world is with a little nonprofit that grew out of the messiness of all, all of that Uh chaos of leaving my community. Uh, One of the fruits that came out of that mess was uh, the Desert Foundation, which very simply put is a a circle of friends exploring not only the spirit of the desert, but the traditions that grew out of the desert, which is uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So I may have started interspiritually more with Buddhists, but now it's more with jews and muslims and and, and muslims also mean sufis our website is sandandsky.org easy to remember because when you look out at the desert what do you see you see sand and you see sky yeah so sandandsky.org wow you've
0: offered so much richness and you continue to thank you so much jessa
2: thank you julia i really love talking to you
0: You to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas Tessa and I discussed the richness of Carmelite spirituality and Teresa of Avila's relationship with God, I'm going to read for you what is most frequently referred to as Teresa of Avila's bookmark prayer. As I read this aloud, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply. As you listen and pray, may the words of St. Teresa, the words that meant so much to her, be a meditation for you on how you are called to union with God. St. Teresa of Avila's bookmark prayer. Let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God only is changeless. Patience gains all things. Who has God wants nothing. God alone suffices. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.